In this week's episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast, I talked to Samantha Glover all about fisheries and crabs and how crabs can be used to help boost the health of reef ecosystems. So this is a really fantastic episode uh, where we talk about the health of the coral reefs in the Florida Keys, what's been happening with COVID, and how it's important to keep the balance right on the reefs. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear more uh, episodes, check out Spotify or anywhere you're listening or head on over to the Ocean Pancake website where you can also get the show notes and any of the things we chatted about. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm here with Samantha Glover, who's a biology master's student at Old Dominion University. Welcome to the podcast, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm so excited to have you here because I put out a post on uh, the Marine Biology Jobs Networking Group, just kind of asking people who, you know, work on something interesting, whether they wanted to share it uh, with everyone. And um, Samantha posted that she's a master's student studying uh, king crab mariculture and how they can be used for coral reef restoration in the Caribbean. So this straight away just caught my eye. It was really interesting. So yeah, I'm so excited to have you here. (laughs) Thank you. Let's kind of get started at the very beginning before we get into uh, crabs and how they can help our reef ecosystems. (laughs) What got you started with working in marine biology and your love of the ocean? Um, So actually, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, in the U.S., on the coast. So if everybody knows the famous show Jersey Shore, if it's uh, broadcast in your country, um, I grew up about 40 minutes north of where that was filmed. Uh, So my, yeah, pretty funny, but my mom always brought me to the beach as a kid. And even as a young kid, I was always interested in science. And I kind of bounced back a couple different times about what I was interested in. I liked geology, I liked space, and then, but I really got hooked on um, animals. So I, I really wanted to be like the crocodile hunter. Um, but then oh, I started reading, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I started reading about sharks a lot. So I think that's what initially got me interested. And even just seeing the creatures at the beach, like, you know, I'd like picking up crabs or mm-hmm. digging for the little sand crabs or mole crabs, they're called. Um, and even just, I'd go, I'd go fishing with my dad. We did mainly freshwater fishing because he kind of learned how to fish, uh, because we were interested, me and my brother and sister were interested at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was just the outdoor experiences I had and, you know, kind of watching 
crocodile hunter on tv and then reading animal books is what really started drawing me to the ocean it's fascinating how many people were like influenced by uh, steve Irwin and the whole show because <laughs> that is probably one of my first memories of just tv shows is just him jumping on crocodiles and me going yep that's that's a thing and now i live in the country where that happens and i see <laughs> the crocodiles and i'm like that is wild like they're big, yeah. they're big and scary, um, mm-hmm. but they're part of everyday life here. So it's 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 been an interesting transition from Europe, anyway. Where you know the scariest thing there is like a I don't know a wild pig, maybe I don't know. Yeah, actually, with the work that I'm doing in the Florida Keys, I was warned that a couple of the quarries that I'm going in have American saltwater crocodiles. Mm. There's a very small population left. And they're protected. And yeah, I was warned by a couple of the uh, quarry owners or the state parks who own the quarries. They're like, yeah, just so you know, be careful if you're getting in there at all, because there's been a crocodile spotted around there. I have not encountered one. Yeah, I have not encountered one yet, but I did get uh, my lab mates to go in a quarry with me. Um, it It did have a little bit of access to the ocean, but apparently two days before that someone saw an eight foot crocodile but we were all brave and got in together (laughs) and it worked out I don't know I don't know if I could do that honestly like there's there's so many areas in Australia where I just won't get in the water but then again like in Broome uh which is north of here everyone says don't swim don't swim and like me and my partner went snorkeling so Mm -hmm. um (laughs) but yeah the salties are the real real freaky ones the freshwater ones apparently are really nice they're like puppy dogs people scuba dive with them and things yeah that's what i mean people were saying that about the saltwater crocodiles in the florida keys they said that they're more skittish and they cross over at some point um when you get into the northern keys and southern florida they cross over a little bit with the alligator and they said the alligators are the ones you want to look out for because they're more nasty oh really (laughs) yeah i don't know all of those are just big (laughs) Big lizard, dinosaur things, they, they freak me out. I don't know, so the person who like dives with sharks all the time. And I'll have like furious debates with my friends, like sharks or crocodiles, which ones are you more afraid of? And like as divers, we're like 100% anti-croc and pro-shark, while like most mm-hmm. other people are like, you're insane. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, so you know, growing up by by the sea and uh, then starting to study it, what were some of the issues that you saw that our ocean was facing that made you want to like continue working in it and try and find solutions? Because these crabs are a very ingenious uh, potential method of helping boost our coral reef ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely, um, you know, always pollution's a factor, you know, I would help do beach cleanups uh, locally in my town. And even when I went to undergrad, we do them, you know, at the beaches near um, where I went to undergrad in South New Jersey. And, you know, you can see pollution's a big problem. I found needles, I found, you know, a bunch of cigarette butts, plastic bottles. So I knew that was one problem, but I also saw that overfishing um, was a big problem as well. So New Jersey actually, or New Jersey and Delaware, uh, Delaware Bay, which is right in between the two, they have the largest population of the Atlantic horseshoe crab. Mm-hmm. And you cannot 
harvest them at all in New Jersey um, during the spawning season, but there's still a male only harvest in New York and in Delaware uh, because they pretty much were being, um, I guess, overfished in a sense. Like They're being taken to use as bait for whelks and also as fertilizer, weirdly enough. Um, they are harvested for their blood uh, to test vaccines, but they've really seen the numbers of these horseshoe crabs dwindle and not really rise back up again. So I've taken part in horseshoe crab tagging to learn a little bit more about them and their movements um, and to just keep track of their populations. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad to me that I'm like, you know, we still aren't really seeing an improvement in horseshoe crab populations. And another cause is uh, a lot of the beach replenishment that's going on is changing some of that habitat. Um, but I also worked as a fisheries technician for a while. And, you know, there was times uh, I interviewed, well, part of the job was I had to interview recreational fishermen and count, measure and weigh their catch. And, you know, I would see people, you know, not obeying the rules, taking short fish. Um, people, you know, I see people do it in front of me if they're fishing, so I pretty much have to sit at one spot for a long time and kind of wait for people to finish up their fishing trip. But I've seen people, you know, take short fish. I've measured short fish. I've seen them kill short fish. And, you know, I think it's a problem when, you know, these management rules are being set and people aren't following them. Cause I'm like, you know, they're being set to protect the fishery. Yeah, it doesn't help if people aren't following it. You know, that's also a, pro a big problem with the legal commercial fishing as well. So many things you've just touched on, but I really wanted <laughs> to kind of um, expand on your work in the fisheries, because I think this is something I know a lot of people here deal with and don't quite understand. But could you explain a bit why are there, um, you know, strict size sizes put on for what people can catch in terms of fish? and quantities of fish that they can catch like why is that set up that way how does it actually help the population and the fishery in general pretty much every year they do stock assessments for populations mm -hmm. and it kind of takes into account like a bunch of different factors like mortality um you know catch uh spawning uh the spawning stock biomass which are your adults that can breed and all that goes into or goes into these, you know, fancy fisheries equations where they figure out, you know, what could we harvest without hurting the population? It pretty much will vary depending on each species of fish, but pretty much that number that they put for the target um, is just a number that won't hurt the stock if you take like that amount or that they estimate because we don't really, we can't really count all the fish in the ocean but they make an estimate with the data that they have through um, fisheries data. You know, they want to put size limits on fish. Yeah, so um, it is a loaded question, but um, yeah, so some of them, some stock or some limits are based on size of the female. Some are based on size of the stock. Um, so it really depends. Um, like I know they have certain, for here, there's a fish called a striped bass, which actually my boyfriend studies. So that's his... Oh. Uh, that's his little baby, his his project. And they have different size limits, like, um, or different slots. Because sometimes you want to let the breeders, like, you want to let the breeders live the really big fish. Yeah. And kind of take fish from smaller slots. But, yeah, I don't think hammer, like, in my opinion, hammering all the big fish, I don't think it's a good idea. Like, I think you should be able to take from all different size classes. Mm -hmm. So you, you're not just hammering and taking, removing all the breeders uh, in a stock. 
Yeah, in Australia we have like a minimum size fish, and then mm. for some species we also have a maximum size fish. And mm -hmm. this is for a couple of reasons. Like on the east coast of Australia, we have a maximum because the big ones have cigatera, which is it's some sort of sickness that you can get essentially from eating big fish because it uh, mm. it bioaccumulates in the larger species. So you're not you can't take these big fish or certain species because they have more cigatera, and if you eat it, you can get very sick. Um, Symptoms mm. are very fun, like you lose ability to feel hot and cold. Very interesting stuff. Oh, um, yeah, not know that. <laughs> yeah, there's reasons like you have to really watch out what what fish you catch, especially in uh, coral reefy areas because that's where cigatora is. Uh, but also maximum sizes because of uh, yeah the big breeders essentially. Mm -hmm. So I think the fisheries have to calculate that between the the biomass and the big breeders i assume can breed a lot more they can produce more babies mm -hmm. and they they live for a long time like this is something i think a lot of people don't realize some of the really big fish they catch you know like the meter long trout or whatever like they can be i don't know 50 years old like, they're old fish and i don't know i feel bad <laughs> <laughs> no yeah i definitely like because you know i with my uh I fished with my boyfriend and you know we we went on one straight bass trip together like two years ago at this point now and we got to we got our limit so we just got like you know two big fish and I'm like I felt bad when you know we I mean we ate them and you know we used the whole fish so we're not just yeah. wasting anything but I'm like I feel bad because I'm like they're both female and I'm like man they were they were huge like it was hard for me to hold mine up and I'm like Man, I wonder how, like, I just start to think where I'm like, I start putting emotion into it. I'm like, I wonder how long this <laughs> this girl's lived for. Exactly. What has she seen? Has she yeah. seen the degradation of the reefs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and I think it's just important to have this conversation and just for people to think about it a little bit more about the impacts if they do fish, about what fish they get and... You know, it's not just a sport. It is a very dynamic and unknown. Like you said, we can't count all the fish in the sea. So it's based off estimates. So we kind of, scientists are just hoping for the best. And um, it's hard because a lot of, I know here a lot of fishermen get really angry, you know, like, oh, how dare they have a closed season? Like we can't fish for three <laughs> months of the year, like a tragedy, you know? Uh, but it's, it's so vital to keep the fish stocks healthy. And in Australia, we're, quite lucky where um you know they're doing very well but in europe uh like there's no fish like in the mediterranean sea. <laughs> i've not seen a fish bigger than like my hand in mm -hmm. a lot of places i've traveled to like when i when i dived in cambodia there was nothing in three months of diving i saw one fish that was bigger than like a dinner plate so mm -hmm. That's why we have to have these strict rules. How, how are the fish stocks, do you think, over there, where, where you guys live? Definitely depends on the fish. And then, um, so for, I know I keep bringing them up, but my boyfriend studies the striped bass in the Chesapeake. And, you know, he believes that a moratorium should be put on them again because they're really being hammered. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not necessarily doing well. But then, yeah, it, it, it depends on the fish. Like other stocks, uh, you know, like I think black sea bass is doing relatively well. So, 
Yeah. I mean, there are some that, you know, I feel like they probably should put more restrictions on them and then some of them which aren't doing as bad. So it really depends. But I think we have good and bad here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. I know since COVID started, um, <laughs> the, yeah, the fish aren't doing too well because in Australia, suddenly no one's traveling and everyone's just bought a boat and is going fishing. So, That's like what happened here. Like, like apparently everybody has just decided to take up fishing because yeah. there wasn't anything else to do when we were on lockdown. So yeah, exactly. And here, um, for for a while, for the two weeks we were on lockdown. Again, we're so lucky in terms of how mm. how it worked out. But for the, I think we had a month where we weren't allowed to do stuff. You were still allowed to go fishing if it was for food. Oh. So, we, I just, I just wanted to go dive, but I wasn't allowed to just go dive, even though that's exercise, but they didn't count that as exercise. Uh, oh, <laughs> so we nice. had to add some fishing rods onto the boat because then we were going fishing. Um, oh, okay. And we dive to like spearfish, but that was still getting food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's been like, I know with scoop time. I know with uh, scuba diving here, they, I know some places have made the rule. Um, like particularly for our research, if we were diving, they like FIU, um, which is where my advisor works now. He was with Old Dominion where I am, but he just got a job at FIU. So they said that we weren't allowed to like share our octopus rigs with people or the octopus hose, I mean. Yeah. So because or you're not allowed to put your mouth on it and check it on the boat because then somebody else could. Yeah, it's all about the germ swapping thing. <laughs> I will say, in an emergency at 20 meters, I'd rather get COVID than drown. Me, so. me too. I agree. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully with the vaccination and everything, we can we can have a better um, better future with all this stuff. This week's episode is sponsored by you guys. Thank you to my wonderful patrons who are part of the Ocean Pancake community and help me continue doing the work I'm doing. If you want to join the family, head on over to patreon.com slash oceanpancakepodcast where you can become a dolphin, a turtle, or a shark and get yourself a t-shirt and get behind the scenes footage and extra tips and tricks and voting power and all sorts of stuff. We have a lot of fun back there. I also share some videos and podcasts that I haven't published publicly. So yeah, it would be lovely to see you there. And thank you so much for your support, even by just listening to this podcast, even by sharing it with your friends. It means the world to me. I'm so glad I can have this opportunity to talk to so many incredible people from all around the world and learn about the beautiful ocean. Anyway, back mm. to the crabs, which is yes. your actual area of research. Could you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about how how are crabs related to coral reefs and why are they so important in that ecosystem? So the Caribbean king crab um, is native to the Caribbean, obviously, in its name. It's the largest uh, herbivorous crab in the Caribbean. So it's a spider crab. And the males can reach a carapace width of a over 190 millimeters so they could get pretty big yeah (laughs) and they have those long legs yeah (laughs) um yeah so they're pretty big they are found on a lot of the uh coral reefs in the caribbean just they aren't in 
high densities necessarily and it could be due to predation when they're juveniles because when they're small you know things will eat them mm -hmm. but once they get to about a little bit above 30 millimeters not much really eats them so they survive a little bit more um but what happened was my advisor and then a previous phd student uh named dr jason spadaro uh they conducted an experiment in two locations in the florida keys um, there were two degraded reefs and then they had one healthy reef as a control mm -hmm. and they started putting uh, these herbivorous crabs or increasing the densities of them on these degraded reefs and their graze their grazing of these crabs actually surpassed other grazers on the reef um, except yeah. for the stoplight parrotfish so they pretty much outgrazed everybody except for the stoplight parrotfish and they saw a three to five fold increase in coral and fish recruitment uh, since the crabs de decreased the density of the algal biomass, uh, which is pretty cool. So they're actually showing that, you know, by increasing these grazing crabs on the reefs, which are native, they can lower that algal biomass and then uh, coral, it's much easier for coral to settle um, and recruit. And they saw an increase in the fish biodiversity as well. So why is the algal biomass bad, essentially, or where does it come from, or why is it in the unhealthy reefs? So the algal biomass pretty much um, smothers coral, so it blocks out that sunlight. It takes over space because it competes with coral for space, nutrients, and light. And part of the reason that it's gotten so bad in the Caribbean is, uh, one, to the decrease of, from the decrease of grazers, and two, from from uh, increase in nutrients, eutrophication, so that algae blooms. But the the reason that the herbivore densities decrease was um, because the black sea urchin die off in the 80s due to a unknown disease. Like they know it was a disease, they don't really know what killed them, but it killed almost 90% of the population. And they were one of the other main grazers on these Caribbean reefs. And then also overfishing has removed a lot of the grazers as well. Um, so then the algae, there's nothing really to keep that algae in check. So it just overgrows and it grows on top of all that coral and pretty much smothers it. And also um, those coral uh, need a hard surface to settle on and that algae, you know, pretty much takes that away. Um, so by having these crabs on the reefs or, or have it increasing the amount of grazers will help keep that algae down and therefore help the corals. Are the crabs like an easier grazer to put back on the reef um, as opposed to like parrotfish or maybe the urchins? Have the urchins come back? They haven't, um, not to the numbers that researchers really want. So there have yeah. been, you know, some, um, universities or either some other groups that have tried increasing the urchins back on the reefs again, but they haven't really been seeing uh, any luck with it. So there's either like a lot of mortality or yeah, they're like, you can still find them in the Caribbean, but they're not in the, in the numbers that they used to be. But yeah. the crabs, um, the, the good thing about them is since my advisor and um, Jason from my lab kind of discovered that these crabs could work um, if we stock the reefs with them. We also found out that they have a pretty cool um, life history to them, which makes them ideal for growing quickly and putting them out on the reefs uh, to help. So they have a relatively short 
larval duration. Mm -hmm. um, so they only spend about 12 hours in the coastal planktonic stage from oh, hatching wow. and they don't and they don't feed. So you don't have to feed the planktonic larvae. And then uh, then they go through two zoeal uh, stages and the megalopa stage, which is right before their first crab stage. And that only lasts about four to six days in total before their first crab stage. So it's like 12 hours, coastal planktonic, then four to six days, and then they're in their first crab stage post-hatch. Um, the adults will consume some protein along with the algae, but it's mainly just benthic epifauna, like the little animals that live on the algae or, you know, on the on the sediment. They will eat some of that because it does help with their growth, but they're relatively easy to grow. Um, they can mate and reproduce pretty much every six weeks, mm -hmm. and they reproduce re year round. And so if we get like a large scale aquaculture going for them, it would be relatively easy because they mainly just eat seaweed, which you can, you know, grow with nutrients and light. Mm -hmm. And then they go through their um, life stages pretty fast. So what, so what does it look like? Have you started growing them? Um, so I have not. Um, I'm mainly looking at saltwater quarries in the Florida Keys to see if they'd be suitable habitats to grow the crabs in. Mm -hmm. um, so I have found, interestingly enough, a couple quarries that do have some crabs in them. Oh, cool. So I'm looking at, yeah, so I'm looking, and we don't know how they got there. You know, it could be either, you know, maybe like a storm surge swept some of them in and they've, you know, a population has been created um, within the quarries. Uh, yeah, so we don't, we really don't know how they got there, but um, I have not started growing them yet, but I am looking at the biology of these ones that live in the quarries and we do have a geneticist that's going to be doing some um, DNA testing on them to see if they're genetically different from the ones that we find out on the reefs because if they've been we don't know how long they've been stuck in these quarries for so they could have diverged a little bit mm -hmm. um, and that'd be good to know before we put them out on the reefs or before we do anything with aquaculture but yeah I'm just in the initial phases so my pro my whole master's project is mainly just looking at the water quality of these quarries, um, their benthic habitat, you know, getting in any information on the crabs that live in these quarries, um, if there's any predators in them, and just kind of looking at the overall conditions to see if we might be able to use other saltwater quarries in the Florida Keys that don't have crabs to see if we'd be, um, we could put crabs in there and essentially grow them. So, so that's really cool. So you kind of, you know, start growing them, put them in these quarries where they reach adult stage, you know, some, yeah. some form of larger um, part of their, I don't know what the names of the life cycle is, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, no, you're good. Yeah, so we pretty much just want to get them to a little bit above 30 millimeters because that's mm -hmm. when um, they're not predated upon as much and then we can move them out onto the reefs um, to help. So. And how would you pick which reefs to put them on? Um, so, I mean, there's a couple, there's, it, it was mainly my advisor who did that study for two mm -hmm. years. So um, I don't know necessarily how he picked which ones he was going to choose. I think he just picked, you know, two, two reefs in um, different, like different areas that were degraded and then also a control reef to do his study. But there are like several, like hundreds and hundreds of patch reefs in the Florida Keys and 
you know, th- there are some that are not in great condition. So I'm sure there's plenty to choose from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That could be really cool because are you worried at all that, you know, we've, we've all seen the issues of like introducing species into an environment and like the damage it can cause. Mm-hmm. Um, are you guys worried at all about, you know, essentially meddling in, you know, nature's process? Um, we're not worried about it we're not worried about it too much because uh since these crabs are native to this area like you know we wouldn't take these crabs like across the world and put them somewhere else but like bring them to australia here you go yeah since they're native yeah exactly yeah since we're since they're native to the caribbean and native to these reefs uh we're not too worried about it and like I said, my advisor study has been going on for two years and he's still been uh, continuously like looking at these reefs and we helped put more crabs on them um, when we were there in mm-hmm. November and December. And they seem to be doing really well. Like you can see the difference in coral growth compared to the other ones. That's great. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I guess if they're, if they're native species, they shouldn't, um, you know, take anything out of balance, essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really cool so finding solutions by um, helping reinstate the balance and that is why you know everything from the fisheries management is so important because as you were saying it was partially due to overfishing and that uh, black sea urchin die off that caused this algal bloom issue in mm-hmm. the first place so yeah I gotta, gotta make sure there's enough grazers left in them I know that's something they talk a lot about in Hawaii as well, because a lot of people mm-hmm. there like spearing parrotfish and all that. And um, I've yeah, been no. seeing a lot of posts like, "Stop spearing parrotfish! We need them to to take care of the to take care of the reefs and get rid of the algae." And mm-hmm. that is one of the big indicators I have seen even on reefs in in, in Australia is like there's a lot more algae blooms and then there's not much else living there. Um, it's yeah. just algae. Um, but interestingly, mm-hmm. we have so many sea urchins. You know, <laughs> you could have some. No, I'm joking. But <laughs> there are honestly everywhere. There's some parts of, like, especially quite rocky reefs where you just see black sea urchin masses. So we need something to put it on them, I feel almost. <laughs> One of the quarries I got in there, I, it wasn't the black spiny sea urchin that I mentioned before, but there was just a bunch of um, smaller uh, urchins. I'm used to Northeast um, US ID, so I'm still learning all my tropical uh, mm-hmm. species, but there were, I literally, I, we went to get in this quarry and we have to get in at night because the crabs are nocturnal if we want to do sampling. And oh, they were just everywhere. That's scary. Yeah, they were just everywhere. <laughs> I was so afraid I was going to kneel on one. <laughs> like, I was like, this is going to go right into my knee. That's why you got to work on that neutral buoyancy. Um, yep. Yeah, I once kicked a sea urchin when I was 12, and I had the spikes in my foot for like a year and a half. Mm. So definitely do not recommend uh, <laughs> getting near those things. They're very soft, mm-hmm. very sharp, and they just break off inside of you. You just can't get them out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's really cool. So how how is Florida's reefs going? I've been, because um, I've had a few podcast episodes um, with various people who work, you know, with the with the lionfish community there or the, uh, the coral reef disease that's been happening in general. 
have you been seeing any differences after this crazy year of COVID where, you know, there have been lockdowns and less people visiting, I think. We definitely had less people going out on the reef for a while. Have you been seeing any differences that have happened this past year? Um, so this was, um, to be honest, this is really like my first time I've gotten down to Florida mm -hmm. in a few years, but the rest of the people in my lab um, who have been with the lab for a little yeah. bit longer than I am, they probably can notice more of the differences um, going on because I haven't really visited Florida's reefs a lot. Um, so personally, like within the last year, because I, I've only been down there one month, I haven't seen any differences, but I'm sure there, I'm sure there might be some minor ones. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe in the future you'll be able to see a little bit better. And um, are you able to continue on with your research now? Is Are you allowed to be doing it and everything? Uh, so yeah, so right now I'm back in Virginia. I'm just doing my spring semester classes, but we're looking to get back down to Florida in mid-May um, for the summer. So yeah, because we were able to squeeze in one month of field sampling uh, due to COVID because we were supposed to be there all last summer and it didn't work out, but then we were able to get down for a month and I was able to get at least the first round of my water quality data done and first round of, you know, some of the um, getting some information from some of the crabs that I found. So uh, that's good at least. But then when I go back, you know, I have to do a bunch of other things, um, but it'll be fun. Uh, that sounds really exciting. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are interested in, you know, the developments. Where where can people learn more about this project or uh, any of the work your supervisor is doing? Is there websites or any other resources you could share with us? <laughs> Uh, no, yeah, no problem. Um, so I know we are working on a website because since he now works at uh, Florida International University, so there, there'll be a whole new one um, switching over from Old Dominion. But we are on Facebook. It, um, it's Butler Tropical Ecology Lab. And then we're on Instagram where it's FIU Butler Lab. And same thing with Twitter is FIU Butler Lab as well. So you can, we post pictures of uh, field work and we even posted a funny one of uh, Bernie Sanders sitting there with cross-legged with his mask that was going around on our boat. One of my one of the people in my life photoshopped it. So it's my um, it. my advisor getting like putting his dive gear on, and then it's Bernie Sanders and his winter gear at the front of the boat. So we post some funny pictures, and we also post pictures about um, and information about people in our lab and the projects we're working on. That's fantastic. <laughs> I can see Bernie Sanders just sitting on the boat, like, yeah, yeah, you guys put the dive gear on. I'll just, I'll just, <laughs> I'll sit here in my mittens. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. And for people um, who want to get involved, is there any way they can help, or what? What piece of advice would you give to people who want to help the oceans? Like, um, definitely, I would say um, there's many volunteer opportunities. Like right now in my lab, we don't really take volunteers. We do have interns, but they usually come from. Um, right now like the schools that we're working with so like FIE where they used to be from ODU but I would definitely say if you want to get involved with um, anything ocean conservation related to definitely volunteer so um, one resource that I did use uh, when I was an undergrad is there's an organization called Earthwatch and they do a bunch of different uh, conservation trips and it's not only ocean stuff it's also terrestrial stuff and I actually went on a shark tagging trip to Belize for oh, a week wow. and you got to you got to work alongside um the scientists and help out putting the tags on um sharks and 
you know, kind of helping out with, um, we, we would anal or not really analyze. We would, I guess, identify all the significant animals that would come into like little video. We put out a video camera and then later go back and watch and like identify everything. Cause they're trying to keep track of, um, what they're seeing, um, mainly sharks and rays. And then like the Nassau grouper that used to be endangered, um, so definitely organizations like that. Um, you know, I've done volunteer work like with Clean Ocean Action, doing beach cleanup. So, and I think it's a good way to make connections to further yourself in the field if you want to get into conservation. Yeah, definitely. Just get involved, get started. Um, mm-hmm. There's plenty of local things all over the world. So mm-hmm. helping out your local community. And I think it's also important to remember that like, What's that saying? All rivers lead to the ocean. So even river cleanups, you know, mm-hmm. forest cleanups, that all helps the ocean in, in the long run. Um, exactly. It doesn't always have to be a beach cleanup. <laughs> I feel oh, like yeah. that's, that's the most like popular hashtag thing on Instagram, but um, taking care of our rivers and our freshwater system is just as important. Um, yeah, I've been done. Um, We've done like campus cleanups at school where you clean up your campus and yep. It all relates. <laughs> just makes me so upset, like campus cleanups. Like, why should we have to have these kinds of cleanups? Why can't people just take care of their trash? I don't know. It's just so frustrating. Like, even in I town, think one you thing gotta, that like, drive down the road and there's just trash everywhere. I'm like, excellent. Good job, guys. I think one thing that one thing in one thing in undergrad that made me so angry is where I went to undergrad, you know, they they said that they were an environmental school and they're blah blah and one day my roommates and I, I i kid you not like in our dorm we had a trash bin and everybody got a recycling bin mm-hmm. like all the dorms and so and they even had separate trash and recycling bins outside and i think what made me so mad one day was i looked outside and i saw the garbage truck pouring both of them in together oh, <laughs> I, was so like, started on that. I was like they're lying <laughs> I don't even know if Australia has recycling anymore because we used to sell it to China and now they don't want it anymore. So I, I, it might just be all going to the tip. Like, I have no idea. (laughs) We still separate everything, of course. (laughs) And we've just gone plastic free. I know it's February now, but it was plastic free January for us in our household and we stuck to it relatively well. Oh, it's awesome. I think we only slipped up and bought like two packets of chips. (laughs) <laughs> they need to figure out how to make chips in non-plastic this is what i'm just saying they're, they're just too good i anyway or, or sell them in like reusable containers <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Oh, that's the one thing i really like i, I need my chips <laughs> all right wonderful thank you so much for um uh coming on to the podcast Samantha. i learned so much about crabs and coral and fisheries and everything so thank you so much for taking the time uh, especially with this time difference so it's nice and late for you at night (laughs) uh thank you so much as as always we'll have all the information and um about the podcast and any links that you want to share and on the website so uh, for anyone who's interested to learn more it's going to all be on the ocean pancake website I also do make um, fish-themed and ocean animal-themed stickers. I have a page on Facebook called Scaled Up. Um, there's also nice. a Teespring that goes along with it. So if you guys are interested in love, ocean, funny pun-themed ocean stuff, then check it out. Okay, I'm going there right now. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to cover my house in that. Uh, I have a mask strap which says, what's cracking? <laughs> <laughs> 
and it's got an octopus. That's on amazing. It. I I just made a design with an octopus holding up a sign that says "What's cracking?" <laughs> Very nice. I like it. I like it. I love I love all these sorts of things. But fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that as well. Um, I'm sure people will love to head on over and check it out. Um, mm -hmm. Thank you. All right.